Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel. We'll this morning be reading verses 1, 1 through 8. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, since the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his face this morning as we come to hear his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise and thank you, oh God, so much to be in your house and to, to worship you. Lord, already our hearts have been so blessed to, to turn our focus upon you, Lord, not upon ourselves or the, the things that we are dealing with. But even in that, God, we lift those, we have had the opportunity to lift those up to you in prayer. And so this morning we pray that we might be like Mary, that we might sit at your feet and that you might teach and, and instruct us. Oh God, we pray for the mighty power of your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to, to enable us to, to see Jesus and to respond appropriately. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today, we, as we said earlier, we're starting a, a new series in, in the Gospel of Mark. And, and my purpose this morning is really to introduce and to orient you uh, to this book, but also to direct your focus to uh, Mark's Gospel, which is the focus of which is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to get through one verse, verse 1. Uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, that's not totally true. This is really sort of like the header to the book of the Gospel of Mark. Okay? The, the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so really that, that verse sort of encompasses the entirety of this book. And so we want to look at this this morning. And, and it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. I will grant it, okay? And I'm, hopefully I'll get more in you than on you, but you know, we'll, we'll see, okay? Uh, but we're going to sort of move through this quickly because I'm going to give you some introductory comments and then we're going to talk about three A's, you know, like ABC, three A's that we're going to look at this morning. But let me make some introductory comments first because kids, when you come to something like the Gospel of Mark, you may think, well, it must have been the second book in the New Testament that was written, right? Because you got Matthew, and then you got Mark, and then Luke, and then John, and so on and so forth. 
And that's how God must have given us the Bible. But that's not true. Actually, by the time that Mark's gospel was written, there were already a couple of other books that had been written. James, for example, was written. The book of Galatians was written. And, and you can understand that because the church was struggling with false teachers and Judaizers. And so they needed the book of Galatians. Uh, they were also being persecuted for their faith and being scattered throughout the region. And so James' letter is just very appropriate. But there were still many witnesses alive at that time that had been with Jesus and seen him. But about the middle of the first century, then those witnesses began to be put to death for their faith. And, and, and they began to die off. And, you know, part of that was Nero rose to power and he was persecuting Christians. But there were others who had put these believers to death. And so God in his wisdom uh, gave the inspired word of God to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they might write the Gospels uh, to us. But then also, where does, where does Mark fit in terms of the Gospels themselves? Well, um, there, uh, for centuries, the, the church has believed that Matthew was written first. But then more modern scholarship uh, sort of suggests that Mark was written first. The answer is, I think, we don't know, though, for certain. You know, it's really sort of hard to, to tell. But we do know that Mark was probably written around 40 to 65 A.D. So written around that middle part of that first century. And, and it was one of the earlier Gospels. We do know that. And, and really, until modern times, the Gospel, according to Mark, has received considerably less attention than the other Gospels. And you can understand why. I mean, you look at Matthew. Matthew's hard to beat in terms of his narrative excuse me, his narrative structure, the storyline and the sequence of Jesus' life, how he, he goes back through the Old Testament and shows how Jesus fulfills that. I mean, it's just, it's just top-notch. And then you have Mark, that's, uh, where he records in, uh, the, the events of Christ's life, and he doesn't even do so chronologically. And, and so you're like, okay. Then you have Luke. Okay, Luke is, is unmatched in terms of the parables and, and the stories of Jesus. So when you look at Matthew and Luke together, you know, these are just wonderful Gospels with great long teaching sections of, of what Jesus teaches. And yet, then you have Mark that really there's only two uh, discourse chapters, two chapters where Jesus teaches at great length. There's chapter 4 where he teaches on the parables, and then chapter 13 where he teaches on the Olivet Discourse, the, the end time, and, uh, and his second coming. And other than that, Mark is really, the teachings just sort of scattered throughout here and there. There's not a lot to it. So there's, there's little that's written in Mark that's not included in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So a lot of folks have given attention to, to those Gospels instead. And then you have the Gospel of John. I mean, there's this great theological treatise of who Jesus Christ is, along with his claims and, and his miracles. And so Mark doesn't contain all of that teaching and the theology that the other Gospels do. And so Mark's really gotten a lot less attention until modern uh, times. And part of that is the style of Mark is more... Uh, the everyday spoken Greek rather than the high literary quality of, of the other Gospels. It's sort of a Gospel for the common man, maybe you could say. 
the gospel according to Mark is very fast-paced. It's very brief. It's very fast-paced. To me, I think of it sort of like a newspaper. You know, war breaks out in Middle East. COVID numbers plummet. You know, it's just that kind of thing, quick and to the point. As a matter of fact, one of the words that, that you'll notice as we go through this gospel is the word immediately. It's used like 40 times in Mark's gospel. I think, if I remember correctly, the word immediately is only used like 52 times in the entire New Testament. And yet 40 of those times is found in the gospel of, of Mark. So it's an action gospel. Uh, the Jesus that, that Mark presents is always on the move. And, and Mark shows us really more what Jesus does than what he teaches. Now, we might look at that and say, well, but we learn about who Jesus is by what he teaches. And it's like, that's true. But we also learn who Jesus is by what he does as well. And so Mark is very helpful. Uh, the reason, I think, that he wrote this way has a lot to do with his audience. Um, most of the people in the ancient world were illiterate. And therefore, they had to have things read to them. And Mark's gospel is like a fast-paced story that can be grasped and it, it can hold your interest when it's read. And so it, it's just a, a perfect gospel for something like that. And, and as I said earlier, Mark's gospel was oftentimes neglected until recently. But I would suggest to you that this is a great gospel for the church today. Okay, uh, First of all, for a new believer, if you're a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're like, who is this Jesus? And I just want to get acclimated. You might get lost in some of the details of Matthew or the theology of John or whatever. But Mark just sort of gives it to you. gives you the bottom line. It's just a great introduction to knowing who Jesus Christ is. If you're a person who is uh, maybe checking out the claims of Christianity or you're wanting to know who this Christ of Christianity is, Mark is a fantastic gospel to read through and to see uh, uh, if that's the case. But it's also good for those of us who are maturing believers as well. Not just so that we can, in our witness, we can share what, God, what Mark says, or as we're discipling new believers, we might take them through Mark. It's not just good for that, but also it challenges us to what we believe about Jesus compared to who he really is. Because it's not a lightweight gospel. It is a gospel that very much shows us who Jesus Christ is. So I just want to sort of orient you to, to Mark's gospel in that way. And now I just want to sort of look at the three A's, okay? First of all, I want to, us to look at the author, okay? The author. Well, you say, Pastor Rick, this is really a no-brainer. It's the gospel according to Mark. Duh, Mark wrote it. But actually, originally, the gospel was written anonymously. Now, having, having said that, we, we must also recognize that there's an unbroken tradition in, in the Christian church that says Mark is the one that wrote this gospel. I mean, even dating back to the second century, the, everyone says that, that John Mark is the one that, that wrote this. Now, John being his Jewish name, Mark being uh, his name in the Greek-speaking Roman world in which he traveled as well. And, and I'm not going to give you all the historical evidence that, that proves this, but I do want to mention one, just so you don't think that I'm making this up, okay? But around the year 140, Papias, who was a bishop of the church of Heriopolis and a disciple of the presbyter or the elder John, uh, we believe that's the Apostle John, okay? He recorded what John the elder said. 
And let me just sort of read it to you. I'm modernizing it in some places to make it easier. But it says, the elder said this also, Mark, having become the interpreter or the scribe of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. But later, as I said, he followed Peter, who composed his teaching to meet the needs of his hearers. But not compromising, as it were, uh, or not composing, as it were, a rhetorical arrangement of the Lord's sayings, so that Mark made no mistake in writing down certain things as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave careful attention, namely, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to say nothing falsely. Now, I, I've been in your seat, and I know when somebody reads a quote, you just sort of like fog over, right? You know, it's like, what, what did you just say? Well, let me just hit, give you some of the highlights. One thing that we see is, is that this was written by John Mark, who was a friend and a disciple of Simon Peter. In fact, the Gospel of Mark was, in a, in a sense, the Gospel according to Peter, because that's where Mark was getting his information, most likely. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's something that's interesting, we don't have the time this morning but if you go to Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 43, Peter is preaching to Cornelius and this group of people that are with him. And if you take that sermon that Peter preaches and you compare it with Mark's gospel, you see that they overlay perfectly. That, that Mark follows that, that outline. So there's a great influence by Peter. Now, uh, we don't know... A lot about John Mark, he was mentioned a few times in the New Testament, but probably the thing he's most well known for is he went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Okay, he was actually, in, according to Colossians 4.10, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Okay, and so he goes on the missionary trip with them, but partway through the missionary trip, John Mark deserts them, and he heads back home. He did, I just couldn't cut it or whatever, but he headed back home. And so that when Paul and Barnabas got ready to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas once again says, we need to take John Mark. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. And there was such a strong disagreement between these two brothers that they actually parted ways and went on two separate missionary journeys. Okay. Now, later on, Paul and John Mark were, were reconciled. I mean, not only reconciled, but Paul talked about John Mark in a number of places in the New Testament in very endearing terms, like writing to the church and saying, when Mark comes, if Mark comes, welcome him. Or calling Mark his, his fellow worker in Christ, and things like that. And so you not only have Paul and John Mark being reconciled, but I think it's interesting, if you think if Peter is the source of, of this gospel, then what you basically have is you have two men who have failed in ministry. You have Peter who denied Jesus Christ. You have, you have John Mark who bailed on his first missionary journey. But you have these two men who failed in ministry who were used of God to bring the gospel to us. Amen? Isn't that glorious to see how God works through his church to bring glory to himself? So Mark is the author. Now the audience... The tradition of the early church affirms consistently that Mark's gospel was written by Mark uh, in Rome as a record of Paul's teaching. And, and it's very obvious as you read through the gospel of Mark 
that you see that it was written to Gentile believers, okay? And I, and I say that, and we'll just look at a few examples here, because uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, that fire hose, remember? Uh, one of the things that we see is, is that Mark will oftentimes, when he uses a Jewish term, he'll explain it. Uh, look, if you would, to Mark chapter 7, verse 11. Mark 7, verse 11. This is where we're going to do our Bible drills, okay? I'm going to sit here, pages rustling or screams turning or whatever, however you're using the Bible. But he says in Mark 7, 11, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, and then you notice what he says in parentheses, that is given to God. In other words, I know you guys don't know what Corban means, so let me explain it to you. He also does that with uh, customs as well. Turn over to Mark 15, verse 42. Mark 15, 42. Where we read, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Okay? Because they didn't know what the day of preparation was. So he had to, to explain that. Or one other place, Mark 12, 42, Mark 12, 42. Especially if you think about this being uh, written to the Romans, um, Mark 12, 42 is, is the account of the widow and putting the two mites, the two copper coins in, in the offering. And, and we read how he takes a Greek word, lepta, which means copper coins, and, and he explains in Roman coinage, quandras. He, he explains in Roman coinage of what exactly she's dropping in. So he says she dropped in two copper coins, which is a penny. Okay, so which is so it'd be like me saying, well, you know, they they worked for denarii, which is a one day's wages, which you know, let's just say is about a hundred bucks. So if I was speaking to you as Americans, I would put that in your language so that, that you could understand. And that's what, what Mark is doing here. So we see the author is Mark, the audience is, is Gentiles. But now this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And that is with the argument of the book. What is the book about? What's, what, what is it that Mark is trying to get across to us? Well, the argument or the theme of Mark's gospel, it's here again, found in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, Mark is describing to us the significance of Jesus Christ. And you see this as you read throughout the, the gospel account. But specifically, Mark is confronting us with three questions. Okay, and this is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time, particularly with the first question. And, um, but these are the three questions. First of all, he talks about Jesus' identity. And so he asks the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's what he answers. The second thing he talks about is Jesus' mission. In other words, why did Jesus come? Or what did he come to do? Okay, and then third, Jesus' call on the lives of his hearers. Okay, Jesus' call to the life of his hearers. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, how should you live in light of Jesus' coming? What difference should Jesus make in your life? So I want to look at those three questions this morning. First of all, who is Jesus? Well, here again, like I said, Mark 1. You should have this verse memorized by now, almost. Uh, Mark 1, 
uh, Mark jumps right into the question and he answers it. You know, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who? The Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark doesn't hide that. He doesn't like slowly unpack it as we go through the gospel. He's like, I'll just go ahead and give you guys the answer right now. Okay? It's, it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to see His divine nature. And, and then we see examples of that, where, where that's uh, demonstrated or illustrated. The first of which is in Jesus' baptism. Look in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and we read, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here's the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son! He is divine! Just in case you guys didn't get that. Then, in chapter 9, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7, at the transfiguration, uh, we read, you remember, Jesus went up to the mountain with just a few of his disciples, and it said, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And of course, you know, the, the disciples who are experiencing this are, are, are trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. You know, and, and don't you just love the disciples? Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't get it, right? You know, I mean, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, you know, Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, right? And you're like, yes, he finally gets it. And then in verse 32, in the same conversation, then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be killed and put to death. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him with the voice of Satan. And you're going, oh, he was so close. <laughs> Not that any of us can relate to that, right? You know? But anyway, so, so we see it in Jesus' baptism. We see it in his transfiguration. But even in his death as well. Look at verse, or chapter 15, verse 39. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And, and Mark is telling us of how Jesus has breathed his last. Okay? And we read in verse 39. And when the centurion, kids, that's a Roman soldier. Okay, when the centurion who stood facing him, that is facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You see, it's, it's amazing that the first person to say on this earth in Mark's gospel that Jesus was the Son of God was a Roman soldier. Not even those who were closest to him, not even his disciples got it. You know, they got glimpses of it, but he is the Son of God. And, and as we are introduced to, to Jesus in the book of Mark, we see that as the Son of God, Jesus is a commanding figure. He is someone to be reckoned with and dealt with. That he is mightily on the move doing the work of God. That's, you're going to see that from, from chapter 1. Jesus is teaching and he's healing and he's casting out demons. And he's cleansing people and he's touching lepers. You know, everything that is in, in opposition to God, sin, sickness, demonic activity, as Jesus encounters it, it has no choice but to be pushed back. Jesus is authoritative. He is powerful. He is mighty. And that's the picture that we see in Mark's gospel. And so in one sense, you know, you look at this and you go, why didn't Mark tell us the Christmas story? Well, that would have gotten in the way. You see, Jesus, I mean, he just explodes on the scene from Mark 1.1 onward. You know, he is about the work of the Lord. 
There's not time for background stories and explain all that. The other gospel writers can do that. So, so we see his authority, we see his power, and we see this in a number of ways. First of all, through his teaching, um, when, when Jesus taught, people were just blown away. Look, if you would, at Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Like I said, these folks were blown away by his teaching. They, he didn't teach like the Pharisees. You know, uh, the Pharisees were always quoting other people and telling you what the experts say. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Or if you read the Mishnah, it says this. And so they were always doing that kind of stuff. But when Jesus spoke, when Jesus spoke, he was, it, it, it was as if he was telling you what God said. Now, this week, or last week, when I was at Twin Lakes, um, that was one of the things I was convicted by and challenged by, as I said, under the preaching of God's Word, how we as ministers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ are to speak the Word of the Lord. We are to be God's mouthpieces. And yet I had come to realize that I had fallen into the trap of just preparing sermons. Now, sermons are supposed to be ministers declaring the Word of God but it is so easy just to fall into that trap of just preparing the next talk, preparing the next talk, and forgetting that you were called by God to be his mouthpiece, to speak his truth to his people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had done and the religious leaders. They were, um, they were, just, they were just speaking rather than being the mouthpiece of God like Jesus. So Jesus shows his authority through his teaching, but also through his encounters with demonic forces. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I want us to notice a couple of things. First of all, there was a man with an unclean spirit in church. Does that grab you? I think we've heard this so much we don't even realize that. Here's a man with a demon in him in church. Okay? And, and, and it's not, uh, it wasn't until Jesus shows up that this demon reveals himself. And it wasn't Jesus who confronted the Spirit. But it was the Spirit who speaks first. Brothers and sisters, the mere presence of the Holy One of God is enough to cause the Spirit to cry out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Can you just... Hear the anxiety in the voice of that demon as he stands in the presence of the holy God? Verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice, he came out. You see, Jesus silenced this demon and cast him out. Of course, the demon didn't want to come out. He didn't have a choice. He had to submit to the authority of Jesus. And then we read in verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Man, what authority Jesus demonstrates. Is that the Jesus you believe in? We also see, though, as Jesus... 
his authority by the way he deals with sin and, and the lives of those who have been ruined by that sin. Um, let me just look at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Uh, we see just a number of examples. He, there's like three different accounts. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 40, you see the leper, and you see the uncleanness that, that sin leaves on us in that leper. He's, he's unclean because of, of his sickness. Now, I, I want you to understand, it is because of sin that sickness exists, okay? But I'm not saying that every person is sick because they have committed some particular sin, and so that's their fault. But I do want you to see that sin and sickness are related there, okay? And, and, and there is this sort of this uncleanness. Sin leaves a stain on the soul. I mean, if you can imagine, if you were changing the oil on your car... And your hands were dripping with oil because you just picked up the oil filter out of the pan. You're getting ready to get rid of it. And your daughter pulls up with her new wedding dress. She says, hey, Dad, can you carry my wedding dress in the house? And there's no plastic on the wedding dress. Would you touch that wedding dress? No, but that's what sin does to us. It soils our, our souls and affects us and makes us unclean. But Jesus comes up and he touches this leper. Okay? Now, now understand this. He touches this leper, that doesn't maybe mean as much to us, but just put yourself back about one year ago when all the COVID stuff was first coming out. And imagine, if you would, you saw a good friend that was coming down the street, and you're like, yes, it's so good to see you. And they're hot, they're coughing and hacking, and they have a fever and everything, and you go up and you just hug them, right? No, you'd be like, whoa, stay away. You have COVID, okay? We know, distance, mask, everything, stay away, you know? And it's the same way with the lepers. There was a sense, but Jesus touched them. Jesus touched them because he's not afraid to touch them because rather than the uncleanness of the man affecting Jesus, Jesus cleanses the unclean man. That's what authority and power he has. But also in chapter 2, we, we have the paralyzed man. Remember the man that his friends took off the roof of the house and they lowered him down and, uh, so that everyone could uh, see him as he's before Jesus? And it's obvious what he needs. He needs to have his body healed. But Jesus looks past his broken body and Jesus sees a broken and a paralyzed soul and he says something that nobody else expects. He said, son, your, sin, your sins are forgiven. To which I'm sure... Uh, the paralyzed man thought, seriously? You know, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking. We don't know. But I could see where that could puzzle him. And, you know, he might think, I need my body healed. And, of course, we know what the religious leaders were thinking. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We see that in verse 7, right? And Jesus says, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. You're getting it. You know, that's the point. Verse 10 of chapter 2 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And what we see here is the disabling effects of sin and how it cripples us. And if you're here today, it may be that you are crippled by sin. And, you know, you just have sin that you are struggling with that is always tripping you up. A sin that you say, oh God, this time it's going to be different. 
Lord, I'm going to have victory over this. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Lord, I'm going to obey you. It's going to be different from this day forward. And what is it? Hours? Maybe a day? Maybe a week? I don't know. Before you then fall into that same sin. But I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, that you have a Savior who has the power to break the paralyzing power of sin. And you can come to Him. Then you have Levi, the tax collector, in the next story. He, he's a picture of the alienating effects of sin. You know, you, you have an untouchable man in Levi. You know, you have a man who is unapproachable. It, you, you might sometimes refer to food that's unfit for human consumption. Kids, you might think that's broccoli. I don't know. Some of you I know don't. But, you know, some of you might think it is. But... Uh, Levi is a man who is unfit for human companionship. None of the Jews would want anything to do with Levi. And so when Jesus sits down at the table with Levi and the other tax collectors and the sinners, that was a big deal. Uh, and of course, what do the Pharisees say? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them in verse 17. It says, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are, uh, excuse me, those who have who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so you see Jesus in his authority dealing with sin and the effects of sin. And you know we need to think about that because so often sin makes us hostile to other people, right? I mean, all you got to do is look at you know the way people are communicating to one another in the news or social media or probably at your job. Sometimes, I hate to say this, sometimes the way we talk to each other in the church. Now, I've, I think we've been very blessed as a congregation in this regard, but it can be that way. There can be hostility, alienation, separation from, from others. But Jesus, Jesus deals with that sin. Jesus reconciles us, not only to him, but to others as well. Okay, one, one last thing as far as who Jesus is. Jesus, and, and just examples of how he demonstrates his authority. He does that to people who are helpless. Look at chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus uh, deals with the storms, with the disciples that are caught in the storm, and he delivers them. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, a, a man with a storm, not on the outside, but on the inside, a man who has an unclean spirit, Jesus comes and he heals him, and he casts out that, that evil spirit. And then in chapter 5, verse 21 through the end of the chapter, you have Jairus' daughter, and, and, and how he comes to Jesus, and he says, please heal my daughter. But before Jesus can go, and, and before Jesus can act on that and do that, then this woman with the issue of blood shows up, and she touches Jesus, and Jesus takes the time to deal with her. He's burning precious time. And, and in the meantime, Jairus' daughter is getting sicker and sicker and sicker until finally the servants show up and they say, forget it, don't bother the master anymore, she's dead. And Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, have faith. And Jesus goes and he goes to his daughter and Jesus reaches through the jaws of death and calls this little girl back and he does so with only a word. With only a word. That's how mighty and how powerful Jesus is. And even death has no choice but to obey the Son of God. And that little girl 
comes back to life. You see power that's revealed in a very desperate situation. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know if you're here today. You may be here today and you may be very desperate this morning. You may be very desperate. I just want to ask you, would you come to Jesus? Would you come to Jesus this morning crying out to him for something? I want you to know that he is a God who hears and he answers. Jesus is one who's able to help desperate people. Now, Jesus doesn't always take away the cause of desperation and hear that, okay? He doesn't. Sometimes in his wisdom, he chooses not to do so. But the reality is, he is here with us in and through it, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever you're going through. And you can cry out to him, and he is there. And so, that's who Jesus is. But what did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? This is a lot shorter, don't worry, okay? We are going to get home before lunch. Um, look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This is sort of one of those transition parts of Mark's gospel. And in Mark 8, 27, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And of course, they gave him all kinds of different answers. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 29 and he says, but who do you say that I am? And, and, and of course, Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And, and, and after Peter answers this, Jesus begins to explain then why he came. This is his mission. Okay, look at chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then flip over to chapter 9, verse 31 lest you didn't get it the first time, Jesus says again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Oh, and if you didn't get that one, then let's look at chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. And so why did Jesus come? What was his mission? Jesus came to die. The King's Cross. That's why we called the series The King's Cross. That's not original with me. I actually borrowed that from someone. But The King's Cross. Because you see that Jesus is the King. The one who comes... And authority, but he's also the one that comes to die. The king's cross. The king has come to die. And, and, and then look at the, the next story. We actually sort of touched on this in Sunday school, in Mark 10.36. And it shows the blindness of the disciples. You know, it's just so comforting to me that these guys were dense sometimes, okay? Because I, I so can relate to that. You know, but Jesus has just said three times he's come to die. And what happens? James and John begin to argue over who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand. And then when the other disciples find out about it, they're like a bunch of little kids. Oh, well, I wanted to sit there. I wanted to be there. They wanted that place as well. We want to be a king with Jesus when he sits on his throne. And, and Jesus looks at them. And in, in, in 1043, he says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why was Jesus coming to die? To give his life as a ransom. The Son of God dying in the place of the enemies of God to ransom them from the wrath of God, to bring them into the love of God and experience the glory of God to enjoy the eternity of God forever. That's what Jesus Christ has done. He is the ransom price for our redemption. So Jesus comes as a commanding figure, one who is a king, but as a king that comes to die. Brothers and sisters, that's how lost we are. That's how lost I am. That's how lost you are. That we are so lost that the infinite mind of God who designed the Milky Way and who created every creature here upon this earth, great and small, who made the sun that is so hot, it, it is the, the same mind of God that when he considered, how can I ransom sinners, that he came up with the only answer that was this, that my son must go and take their nature and become sin in their place and die in their place. That's how lost we are. And Christ comes to show us the way to his kingdom as he dies. Jesus doesn't come simply to show us the love of God, but he comes actually as the ransom price. It costs him. Jesus is the price to ransom my soul and your soul from the fires of hell and the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, let that sink in. Spend this Lord's Day just thinking about that. And let that compel you to worship. And so who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Why did He come? To die in our place for our sins, to pay our ransom and to redeem our souls. But then how should we respond? Okay? What's His call to us? Well, the Son of God comes and He lays down His life for you. Is it too much to ask that you would lay down your life for Him? Is there any sacrifice that is too great to make for him. As you work your way through Mark's gospel, you'll see that it's really sort of a discipleship manual in, in one sense. Yes, Mark does show us who Christ is and why he came, but he also shows you what a difference Jesus makes in people's lives. One thing we see in Mark's gospel is he causes us to be repenters and believers. Repenters and believers. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we must be repenters. We must be believers. But we also must be followers and fishers. If you look at uh, Mark 1, 17, Simon and Andrew uh, we see had left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus called them and said, Come, leave everything. Um, let me read uh, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make, and make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's that word immediately, and immediately, they didn't even think about it, they left their nets and they followed him. Brothers and sisters, I, you know, in the modern evangelical church of America today, Oftentimes, what we do is we just add Jesus to our life. You know, we just say, I believe in Jesus. And that gets me a ticket to heaven, right? 
You know, so we're just sort of adding him to our life. But are we willing to give up everything to follow him? Everything to follow him? But when we come to Jesus, we also become servers as well. You know, it's interesting when people finally get who Jesus is, that they stop serving themselves and they begin to serve others. Uh, in uh, Look at chapter 1, verse 31. Jesus uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and, and I want us to see what happens. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You see, that, that's what happens when, when Christ gets a hold of us. But, but let's be honest, you and I, we're not always very good at serving others if there's not something in it for us. And I don't mean we have to get repaid. We lots of times like to do things for people. But even in that, do we not sometimes get a good feeling? You know, that, hey, I did something well. Or I got to help somebody out. And there's, So we do in one sense sort of get something. But we're not very good at serving others when we really get nothing out of it. Especially when we serve somebody and they don't appreciate it. You want to know the test of your heart. That's when you, know the te- that's when you see what's really in your heart. When you serve somebody... And they criticize you for it. They don't appreciate it. But that's the very people that Christ has called us to serve. The last, the lost, the least, the unattractive, the uncool, the people that nobody else wants to do. Um, that's who we're called to serve. Look, if you would, at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark eight thirty-four. Very familiar passage. Jesus said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory? of his Father with his holy angels. You see, Christ calls us as his disciples to radically redefine our focus. Off of ourselves, right? What does he say? Deny yourself. But you know, that's where we live, right? I mean, don't we? I'm willing to serve in the church as long as it sort of fits into my family schedule, as long as it works with us, as long as it doesn't inconvenience us too much. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm willing to go help my neighbor, but you know, it's just our schedules don't match up. And you know, or yeah, I'd love to do this for my parents, but you know, every time I do something, they criticize me for it. But the gospel redefines our focus off of ourselves and on to Christ and the glory that is to come. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Brothers and sisters, if we are following Jesus and we are carrying a cross, right? There, there can only be one place to which we can be going if we're carrying a cross, and that is to die. That is to die to self. And, and this is how the world treated uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is how the world treated our master. They beat him and they whipped him and they murdered him. And Jesus says, you really want to follow me? Jesus says, you really want to 
get to know who I am, then take my cross and put it on your shoulder and carry it. And guess what? You'll die. Not for your sins, but for the privilege of serving me. Wow, brothers and sisters, that's, that's a lethal message. It will kill your selfishness. If that gets a hold of you and grips you for what it's meant to do, it will kill your selfishness. It will kill your habitual determination to put yourself first. Uh, you satisfy your desires for food and drink and sex and all other kinds of comforts, right? But when the gospel gets a hold of you, it causes you to deny yourself and to follow Jesus down the path that leads to death on this earth, but life forever. Isn't that the logic of the kingdom? Die now, live later, right? That's what we're called to in, in Christ. And the disciples said that they wanted to sit with Jesus in his glory. And what did Jesus say? Oh, guys, brace yourself. You don't know what you're asking. You know, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to receive the baptism that I received. You're going to have to take the cup of suffering that I took in order to do that. Well, can I ask you this morning, are you ready for such a message? When Jesus calls a person, he bids him to come and to die. And as we go through this gospel account of Mark's, my concern is not so much what you will make of this gospel as much as what this gospel will make of you, what this gospel will make of me. May the Holy Spirit so work in our hearts that we would come and die, that we might truly live. Amen? Let's bow our heads and just have a time of meditation on the Word of God that we heard preached this morning. Lord and our God, we come to you this morning and our cry to you is, God, don't, don't make us feel more comfortable about ourselves. Rather, let us see Jesus for, for who he is. Oh God, let the weight of the good news of the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come down heavily and weigh heavily upon our hearts that we might see him for he, who he is, that we might understand his mission, and that God, that we might respond appropriately by faith. Oh Lord, I pray for us as we go down this journey that we will not be left the same as a church. You will change our hearts, oh God. And if you are working in the hearts of any of this morning, especially those, Lord, who do not know you, 
I pray that they might come to faith in you to see that Christianity is not just some mamby-pamby religion, but it is God Himself coming to earth to save sinners. And may they bow their knee before you and worship you and call you their God. May you set them free from their sin to newness of life. The Lord, work in our hearts, we pray. Please, please, oh God, give us a revival. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.